welcome to another episode of Jello the Month Club. I'm your host, Diana Koch. On this episode, we are analyzing 1987's horror hybrid Stage Fright, also known as Aquarius, Bloody Bird, and Deliria. Stage Fright combines the best parts from the Jello and Slasher subgenres, in addition to a large dose of director Michael Soavi's flamboyant visual style. To help me dive deeper into this film, I am joined by a YouTube film reviewer who loves to talk all things horror. We will discuss the history and evolution of slasher movies and where stage fright fits within the subgenre. My guest brings his extensive knowledge of horror cinema to this month's episode. The following conversation has been pre-recorded via Skype. Now enjoy the latest episode of Jalo of the Month Club. Welcome to the podcast, first-time guest, Dylan Tillman. Hey, thank you. First off, foremost, thank you so much for allowing me to come on. I love listening to it. I've enjoyed a lot of your episodes. So to be able to come on here and talk about some slasher movie, one that I have a lot of thoughts on, is is an honor. So thank you. Thank you. Oh, you are so welcome, and thank you for being here via Skype. Yep, um, yep. I'm sorry that I had to wait 10 months to get you on, but I needed to do a super gory slasher just in time for Halloween. For anyone that doesn't know you, can you give the listeners a peek into your background? Yeah, um, so I am a film critic for Slasher Movie Reviews on YouTube. I started in September of 2010, back in high school, when I was just driving my friends nuts talking about horror movies. Just a little baby. Yes, I I was a baby. I I did not have the facial hair or anything. My voice, I swear to you, was even more pitched than it is now. It was a mess. And I was driving my friends nuts. And they were like, Dylan, can you talk about something else? We don't want to hear, you know, your love for like slasher movies and From like the Friday, Friday the 13th, 13th remake. Exactly. Exactly. Honestly, that was prime error for me. That was like, oh man. So I was like driving them nuts. So what I did is I turned on the camera on YouTube and I started just word vomiting there and then now 10 years later I've made a somewhat mildly successful career out of it where I've been able to go and travel to be in different film festivals as press you know I've covered South by Southwest I've covered Overlook I've covered Fantastic Fest which is where I had the awesome privilege of meeting you there yeah um and that's where our friendship sort of bonded from yeah yes yes you know nothing is better than watching horror movies and then taking shots in between literally nothing there's nothing in the world I'd rather be doing (laughs) exactly there's literally nothing (laughs) 2021 is gonna have more festivals and more shots I'm speaking it into existence So yeah, and then next thing you know, I've spawned a career. I've had some massively wonderful, successful moments, you know, um, that have spawned over. Because I literally just celebrated 10 years just last month. And so I have- Congratulations. Thank you. It's a huge milestone, especially YouTube where, you know, people give up very easily because there's so much content for you to still be passionate and keeping it fresh and fun. And I see all the stuff you're doing all the time and it's just amazing. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Um, but yeah, mostly I mostly talk about horror movies over on there. I do read a lot of books or now recently listen to a lot of audiobooks, and I'm always listening to things that are about to come out. So I will like to review that content as well. But number one horror fan have always been, you know, so I love talking about it. But slasher movies are 
my heart, my soul, what I love the most in the whole wide world. It's what actually got me into horror movies. Friday 13th was my first horror film, so I've always felt a sense of connection towards the slash movie genre. I talk about horror movies, I do top 10 lists, everything under the sun, you know. I've met some amazing, amazing, amazing talented people and had the chance to talk with them. I'll never forget my chat with Ari Aster, because you, you, me and you both love Hereditary. <laughs> we love Hereditary. And yeah. I had just had a couple of shots prior to talking to him. And so, you know, he's like, who is this drunken buffoon, like, pouring his heart out to me? But so it's been some really magical moments that have happened over the years. Uh, I remember Evil Dead when it was coming out, the remake, the 2013 mm-hmm. remake. Um, they actually put a TV spot out there because back in the day before there were reaction channels like there are now, there was little old me doing reaction videos on YouTube. And uh, I remember Sony saw it and it was like, can we actually buy your reaction from you and have rights to it? And I was like, sure, why not? Here you go. And next thing you know, I, they put that in their marketing campaign for the film. So that was like my 15 minutes of fame. So oh, that that's was really, so cool. Really yeah, I guess trailers like that with the reaction shots were really popular around paranormal activity. I think that was like yes. one of the first ones I can remember having the reaction shots and they still do that till this day. I remember watching The Walking Dead back when it was mildly interesting. <laughs> like <laughs> and, season uh, two. <laughs> yeah, I think it was literally like the second or third episode of season three. You know, and I'm like watching and they're about to throw this. Uh, and they told me, hey, this is the episode that we're premiering the Evil Dead TV spot on. And I remember sitting there. I'm like, oh, my God, that's my my face for like two seconds. Yeah. And I was like, that's that's insane. Share um, that forever. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I'll have, I have the I have a copy of it, which is really cool. So it's really fun to know that, like the passion that you have and being able to see that flourish into a somewhat mildly successful career. I talk all things horror movies over on YouTube. Um, so check me out slasher movie reviews. Um, big massive horror fan. Um, and mostly massive fan of slasher films, which is why I'm on this podcast today. Thank goodness you're here. Pretty much everything I've watched lately has been part of a virtual film festival since the last episode where I discussed the psychic with Sarah Adler and we talked about tarot and supernatural Jalo and it was a really cool episode if you haven't checked it out. Since last episode, I attended the virtual editions of Fantastic Fest, Salem Horror, and Nightstream Film Festival. And Dylan, I know that you've also been covering some film festivals yourself for your YouTube channel. Do you want to talk about some of your favorite films from recent festivals? Uh, yeah, so I have been covering a bunch of festivals as well. Um, not the same ones as you, but uh, I also did the Fantasia one, which I know you did as well, because you also had a, a podcast episode on that one. And but I've also been I did I did the New York one, which uh, had a more like dramas or whatnot. But you know, they throw in one or two horrors that I'm interested in seeing, I go check those out. And then, but I most notably right now, I am covering the Nightstream Festival, mm-hmm. uh, which is like four or five festivals that are going on right now. And they came together to put on this one festival because they couldn't yeah. put on their own. Yeah, well, funny story about that. Uh, Overlook Film Festival is part of Nightstream Film Festival. And we were supposed to go to Overlook Film Festival together. And then, I it, got, know. And then it got canceled. And then they announced it was virtual. So I guess technically we went together, just we not did. in the same state. 
Yeah, unfortunately. <laughs> well, unfortunately. Well, some... <laughs> I know, seriously, we're missing like the shots in between movies. Exactly. Like, we have exactly. to text each other and be like, shot? Okay, it's time for a shot. Yeah. Yeah. Well, what are some of the films that you liked from Nightstream? I have a list of five because I watched ten. And uh, I would say the ones that really stuck out to me, or at least were interesting, and one of them I'm still processing, um, but I really enjoyed Anything for Jackson. So Anything for Jackson revolves around an older couple who loses their only grandson in a car accident. And (laughs) the grandfather is a doctor, and he ends up kidnapping one of his pregnant patients with the intentions of performing a reverse exorcism putting their deceased grandson's soul into the unborn baby. And like, Mm. just that concept alone, like all you have to say to me is like reverse exorcism and I'm there. Yeah, Um, no. Also, it was like, it did. It did. They go back to like Japanese horror where they love to get the contortionist to bend their, bend backwards Mm. and walk funny and with the hair. So um, that stuff really got there. That stuff, anytime I see that stuff, it could be the worst horror film. I'm like, all right, you gotta, you're getting at least like a one and a half or a two because that stuff always gets me up and out. Very and, inventive uh, scares, yeah. Very, very inventive scare. And also, I loved, and this isn't a spoiler because you learned this earlier on in the film, that they're Satanists, but they're newly converted Satanists. Because they would do anything and everything to get their little Jackson back. So there is some humor in Lace throughout the film. And it's really well done. And tonally, the movie manages to hold that all together very, very well. Like, you know where the movie's ending up, yeah. most likely. It, it but ends. There's two ways it can end. Yeah. So it's like 50-50 shot. The film isn't, like, fully fleshed out. But I think it's worth it for, like you said, like, there's, like, Japanese scares and like the contortionist and the stunt actors like really great another one that i really liked that i think you liked too was bloody hell yes yes this fun. is probably fun 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 i just found it to be completely entertaining from start to finish i mean even though uh it reminded me a little bit of like ready or not but taken a little bit more trashier Instead of Satanists, you have cannibals. <laughs> yeah. And... <laughs> did you see Why Don't You Just Die? I think it's a Yes. Okay, I so reminded me I of that. that yeah. For the listeners, Bloody Hell is about a man with a mysterious past. It's really not mysterious. They explain it in the beginning of the film, but I won't spoil it. Um, and a mysterious past that flees the country to escape his own personal hell, only to arrive somewhere much, much, much worse with cannibals. But yeah, it reminded me of... Why don't you just die like crazy and bloody and mixing of styles. Like there's like a couple fantasy sequences or little romance, a lot going on. That shit crazy. Super fun. I like that one too. Yeah. Yeah. No, that one was a blast. Uh, I, I really liked Ben O'Toole's performance as like the lead guy. He was just so interesting. He had this like John Wick sex appeal to him. That was just like, you know. <laughs> when he was doing the pull-ups on the rope. Yes. <laughs> like, dude, is that the time to be doing pull-ups? Not the time. Especially when you're, you're missing a limb here, buddy. <laughs> but it was like, he had, he just had that, like, it was like, it's like 
that you swapped out a few roles. So it's not the most original thing, but it's a very, very fun movie. I had a blast. I wish I could have saw that in a theater, uh, especially with the right crowd. And once again, with shots, it would have been a lot. It would have been even more fun. What are some other movies that you liked from Night Stream? It's a little lifetime-y, but I did enjoy Run, the opening film uh, with Sarah Paulson. Um, It is like a lifetime, mothery, gone bad, hiding secrets type of movie. But I did enjoy it, and I actually think it's from the director of Searching, so it is made with craft. You know where it's going. It's not. It's very predictable, but it's made with craft, and Sarah Paulson is a great actor, so she's able to bring it all together. Um, so I did really enjoy that. Will but, that um, be streaming anywhere soon? Hulu. It got bought by Hulu. Okay. Um, so it's so run, be, run on Hulu soon. Run okay. on Hulu, yes. Like, there's two that I've been thinking about a lot. I watched Come True, which I don't know if necessarily I loved it. But I'm fascinated by the aesthetic and the music and everything about it. I just, the Same, ending. except for the last, like, minute. Exactly. The final moment. Like, I get it. It makes the movie sad and very tragic. And, but it, I kind of was digging, not the, like, just pure, like. I if, think there was, like, we're trying to, I'm trying to keep the spoiler free. But I yeah. think that there's a way to keep that ending, but just add, like five little scenes throughout the film that would just bring it all together and make me really like the film. Yeah. Uh, but great synth soundtrack. Oh, the and like dreamy, is- like, dr- like a dreamy. Yeah, and the, moment. just the, the whole, like that l- low dim blue, uh, like aesthetic that they, they got going for it, which is really, it's a beautiful looking movie. And well, I the love director the did, he directed, um, the Father's Day segment and Holidays. Did you see that? Yeah, I did not okay. know that. And yeah, I was so not a fan direct- of that. <laughs> okay. So I like the Father's Day segment. I think it's very well made. So I definitely saw that in Come True as far as the cinematography and the coloring and all the whole look of the film. But man, I just wish that. And like, either just get rid of that last like minute of the film or add like, five minutes extra somewhere (laughs) yeah yeah i'm actually gonna i'm actually with you on that but then the one that probably stunned me the most was honeydew Mm. yeah honey don't (laughs) (laughs) but go on yes i really really like this one um but it, it, it's not it's probably it's got its issues i guess you could say but it was a movie that was so just batshit insane to me that i just and like nothing I mean, even happened until an hour into the movie it's still it just like even be, before the movie kicks in like you both really kicks in kicks in you have this weird jarring edits and sound design that where it's like I feel like I can hear everything that's going on and it's like this dark twisted like Hansel and Gretel that turns into Texas Chainsaw Massacre by the like last act of the movie and yeah I was about to say do you want me to like recommend you this little film from 1970 called Texas Chainsaw Massacre Like, it gets a little like that towards the end. And there is a batshit insane cameo that comes out of left field. So the whole thing is just, it's wild. It's a mess. 
in a way, but I loved it. I I was just, I was like, where is this? Ta- this is just insane. And it's a movie where I was like, it's made with a, a semi sense of craftsmanship that I feel like I this that, director, yeah. this director is going to make something great. Like, I feel like this director has the potential to really just go berserk. This isn't it, but I see the potential for him. And the fact that he has this said cameo, which I definitely don't want to spoil, but. I can um, <laughs> summarize my feelings about the film, which is my, my letterbox review. Quote, I'll quote, this movie sucks and so does the cameo. <laughs> That's short, sweet, to the point. I mean, man, I'm really surprised that you like that, considering it is, like, ripping off Texas Chainsaw Massacre. It is. It does. It rips it off, and it rips off the story of Hansel and Gretel, and it rips, yeah. off, a lot of, it rips off a lot of things. But it's okay. done the style of in the presentation of it. I don't know why. All Maybe right, we have a time. very divisive film here with Honeydew. <laughs> yes. We're going to hear first on Jalo Month Club. Yeah, it's just I I was with it. I well, I wasn't with it, but I was in it. I was watching it and I was enjoying the ride of Honeydew. And so that one just I mean, I think anything for Jackson is technically the best film I saw at the festival, but Honeydew is the one that has been playing the most in my head. Yeah. Did you get um, to see Mandibles? I did not because I still haven't seen Deerskin. Okay. And I, I need to see Deerskin. I love hey. Rubber. You don't have to. I know I don't have to. to. Very similar style, all of those films. Um, So Mandibles is the story of two simple-minded friends who discover a giant fly in the trunk of a car and decide to domesticate it to earn money. So they're trying to teach it tricks so that they can use it as like a sideshow attraction and earn money. The way I sum up this film is French Bill and Ted find a giant fly and have an absurd adventure a la weekend at Bernie's because it's like dark and fucked up. And these guys are like kind of shitty, but you can't help to root for them and root for the fly. And I don't know. So if that sounds up your alley, watch Mandibles. (laughs) I believe it's out in cinemas in November, like VOD. I know it's playing in France in November. So hopefully it comes to the US soon, but it's a, it's a French film, Mandibles. I like that. I also really like the short film called Audio Guide. It's about a woman who is told the secrets of the world through an art gallery issued audio guide. Really cool concept. She's in this just small little art gallery with a little iPod and some headphones and she's going to each painting. And, you know, the audio guide is explaining, you know, who the artist is and, you know, what year and the inspiration behind the painting. And then a person walks by and it starts telling her the life story of the person. It's short, smart. It looks beautiful. It was shot on film. It has beautiful, soft grain and soft coloring um, and very well executed. So audio guide, I would recommend that short film. I've been doing the New York Festival, which is just because I want to get, uh, I want to see all those pretentious Oscar winners early. <laughs> so, I saw Nomadland with, with Francis. Just weep. I've heard great I, things. I weep. It might be the best drama I've seen of the year. 
Um, and then I watched French Exit with Michelle Pfeiffer, and she's fantastic in that. Like, absolutely fantastic. And there's a black cat in it, which you know I love that. And there's a scene that's going to make your heart just soar with that black cat. Um, <laughs> I don't know if it's necessarily, like, a great movie, French Exit. It's kind of like Honeydew, where it's just the, the structure is so odd, but the but but you have Michelle Pfeiffer and this black cat that just, you can't help but be like, yeah. I'm, I'm enjoying what I'm watching just because You of had that. me at Black Cat. I'm there. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, Fantastic Fest for me, I would say that the film that I liked most was Bloodthirsty, which is the second film that I've seen in literally the past couple weeks from director Amelia Moses. She directed Bleed With Me, which played at Fantasia International Film Festival, and I reviewed on my Fantasia episode. Um, Amelia Moses, she's definitely a talent to look for. But Bloodthirsty is about an indie singer who is having visions that she is a wolf. When she gets an invitation to work with a notorious music producer at his remote studio in the woods, she begins to find out who she really is. It's a werewolf film about a lesbian pop star. And, <laughs> I love that. Um, of course I liked it. It's like, yeah, it's exactly. Yeah. I mean, the only way that it could be more for me is if it was a lesbian vampire pop star. Then I'd be like, Ooh. yeah, this one, this movie was completely written about me. Yeah, no, uh, I saw her bleed with me. I saw that at Fantasia. I really enjoyed it. Uh, I, liked I, it. I liked it as well. I felt like it was well executed, but it was very slow. I felt the end wasn't as strong as I would like, but I think that Bloodthirsty has better pacing. Universally speaking, most people have liked Bloodthirsty more. And I really like Bleed With Me, so I'm excited to get around to watching Bloodthirsty. Also, for the past two weekends, I have been watching films as part of Salem Horror Fest. There are two short films that I really liked. One is called Itsy Bitsy Spider. It is about a man who struggles to maintain his sanity after discovering a menacing spider in his boyfriend's apartment. It's extremely impactful, creepy, and psychological. And the short film approaches hard topics and queer representation with a thoughtful script and delicate touch. And then kind of on the opposite spectrum, (laughs) opposite side of the spectrum is Satanic Panic 87, which is around three and a half, four minutes long. And it's about a, I think it's a brother and sister who are trying to open the gates of hell and they're going through all of the satanic rituals and it's very stylish and it's kind of like deathgasm, but like really the really aggressive parts of deathgasm. The only thing I, I just wish it was longer. That's, that's also satanic panic 87 and itsy bitsy spider from Salem horror fest. Love those. both of those sound Phenomenal. I want to watch both of those right now. Those those sound like both sides of the spectrums of horror that I enjoy. Itsy Bitsy Spider, the coloring was very like the Babadook. Like it was very like muted tones and like great set design, like very detailed and thoughtful. Yeah, I would recommend that for oh, sure. Yeah. It sounds like we have been watching many, many great films. So let's talk about another maybe great film called Stage Fright. I don't know your opinion on the film, but I will find out. And you don't know my opinion either. (laughs) No, no. I like that. I like keeping it a surprise. We've had very divisive opinions on films. We've we've matched, and there have been movies where it's like, no, I am not with you. So I am interested to see where we 
Where are we aligned on this? Forgiving that I am. Oh, oh yes. It's 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 very easy to please me. I'm not even going to deny that. I'm I'm very easy to please. Released in 1987, Stage Fright was a late addition to the Italian Giallo film cycle. First-time film director Michael Soavi took on the tricky task of creating a rare film that is both slasher and giallo. The film follows a group of stage actors and crew who lock themselves inside a theater for rehearsal of a musical production, unaware that an escaped mental patient has been locked inside with them. Written by George Eastman, Stage Fright establishes the self-indulgence of the era with 80s glamour and scenes of murder and carnage. While this film was Soavi's first feature as director, he had previously worked as an assistant director for Dario Argento and Lombardo Bava on such films as Tenebrae, Demons, and A Blade in the Dark. The director has stated that on Stage Fright, he didn't feel ready to direct, but of course he said yes when he was offered the chance. This episode will contain spoilers on Stage Fright. It is currently streaming for free on Tubi and Voodoo. I actually watched it on Tubi. And, Me too. Uh, yeah. Me too. Yeah. <laughs> Good word. Good wordplay there. I'll give yeah. you that. There are many characters in this film. Nearly all of them end up dead with little backstory. So forgive me if I don't mention or remember their names. Honestly, it's, I'm with you on that. Well, I think the part of this film that is the most iconic is the kills. Absolutely. Yeah. 86-minute runtime with nine kills by the killer. That's one kill every nine and a half minutes. That, that man stayed busy. Let me yeah. tell you. When I, when I, <laughs> yeah, when I was watching this, I'm like, yeah, this man is, uh, he is not, he's getting he's right efficient. to the, He's efficient. And even this movie, like, I felt like, oh, we're already getting to the killing now. Like, I felt like we got to the killing really quick in this mm-hmm. movie compared. A lot of slashers, they either get to it way too soon or they start way, way too late. And you're like, man, that was only like 25 great minutes of killing. And this thing was like, no, we've got a kill every 10 minutes. There's also one additional kill that is not by the killer, along with one fake out kill. So mm-hmm. really, there's 11 kills in this film. Awesome for slasher fans. Yeah. We should talk about the reveal of the killer up front. Unlike a typical Jalo film, the identity of the killer is known from the beginning. There's no mystery. It's known. Yeah. He's a deranged actor um, who's in the midst of a trial, practically. Gates, and he goes to a production and is like, slash, yeah. slash, slash. And I'm not the expert when it comes to Jalo. You, that is definitely you. And so uh, when it comes to Jalo, I feel like they always had that whodunit mystery element so therefore that's what i feel like makes to me while watching more of a slasher movie because slashers there's always a backstory like with the always that's what it is i mean a giallo is typically italian it can not be italian horror thriller mystery this was horror not really a thriller and there was not much mystery so it's a little sprinkle of giallo yeah um the giallo feels more like the fact it's Italian and the aesthetic of, with mm-hmm. the colors. And who no. made it as well. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. So we start off the film with, this is my favorite part of any film. There's a black cat yeah, and it lives. Black... Yes, it does. It, it goes through some tribulations. There's some people who don't know how to properly hold a cat in this no. movie. 
Um, and you hear the cat meowing a lot, right? Before you even get to a single shot. So immediately yeah, I'm I like, worried. I was worried too. I'm hearing this cat meowing a lot. I'm like, I better not see a cat death in the first thing or else no. I'm going to. No, I <laughs> almost, I almost was going to have to text you and say, Dylan, we're <laughs> reviewing a different movie. I can't do it. Yeah, no. <laughs> but the movie opens on a musical performance group rehearsing a piece about a fictional mass murderer known as the Night Owl. Epic costuming on the Night Owl. Iconic. I love it. Oh, yes. This is the second time I've actually seen this film. I rewatched it, and honestly, it's been years. It's been years. So to be honest, it felt like I was watching it for the first time. I was like, man, this costume is great. Like, on the idea it's a great of, Halloween costume on, I'm like honestly thinking why haven't I not dressed up as this killer it's just so cool and simplistic and yet it doesn't sound like it would work on paper like an owl killer but like those eyes those like white eyes on that I was I was yes yes with the costume yeah I, I was super into that costume um at the start of the film one of the actors who I thought her name was Alice when I was writing notes. I wrote Alice. Apparently her name's Alicia. So forgive me. I thought it was Alice for some reason. So one of the actors, Alicia, sprains her ankle. Alicia and another actor named Betty, she's the blonde actress, she's, they sneak out of rehearsal for medical assistance at the closest hospital, which happens to be a psychiatric hospital. <laughs> <laughs> I never, never in my years would I think, oh, I'm hurt and need medical attention. Let me stop by this psychiatric hospital. Uh, and, oh, yeah. man. But while, spe- <laughs> while speaking to a doctor, the women recognize the name of a hospital patient. The patient's name is Irving Wallace, a former actor who went insane and became a serial killer. Remaining undiscovered, Wallace, I'll just call him Wallace. Wallace kills one of the hospital attendants and sneaks out to hide inside Betty's car. I guess the first kill is about 10 minutes in when he kills the hospital attendant. So it's like, boom, starts right away. And that's where you're like, oh, so that's the killer. There's no mystery. Upon returning from the hospital, Alicia is fired for leaving during rehearsal, which I found to be ridiculous. Like she's injured. (laughs) What did you expect her to do? Uh, Outside, Betty returns to the car only to be murdered by Wallace with a sledgehammer to the mouth. Brutal. Moments later, Alicia finds Betty's body and calls the police. The body is removed and two officers are stationed outside the premises. But as you know, classic horror films, the police are not good for anything. Mm -mm. They might as well not be there. You know, defund... All the police, and in even in the movies, <laughs> especially in the horror movies, because they do Except jack shit. Adam Brody in Scream 4. Yes, he is safe. We love one cop. One yeah. cop. <laughs> <laughs> I like that stance. Uh, meanwhile, the play's director, Peter, changes the screenplay. He renames the show's antagonist to Irving Wallace and insists that everyone stay the night to begin rehearsals with the new material. The group reluctantly agrees to stay with the promise of additional pay as one of the actors, Corrine, she's the brunette, is instructed to hide the theater's exit key. Again, crazy decisions happening in this film. (laughs) Like, let's hide the exit. 
Ah, it's infuriating. They already agreed to stay. Like, you don't need to hide or lock them in. They've agreed to stay. They're going to get extra money. They know what they... <laughs> I, much. Oh, I know. <laughs> it's like it's like when the cell phone signal goes out in a horror movie, and then they have to not only but take out the tower with it. Oh, my and gosh. Just so they... Can we go back to Honeydew real quick? How come neither one of them had a portable charger? I, I don't know. <laughs> like, I'm not a field researcher camping out in the country, and even I have a portable charger. Yeah. Ill-prepared, and I'm not saying they deserved what happened, but maybe they did. <laughs> <laughs> the director then begins to rehearse a scene with Corinne as Wallace appears in the owl costume without the others knowing it's him. So we have our killer in that epic costume. Wallace pulls out a knife and stabs Corinne several times, killing her with with the others watching in shock. The kills in this man, like, they don't play. They don't. They don't. And uh, if you want blood and you want that splattery that you get with the, with the slasher genre, this movie delivers. I felt like I was very satisfied with the blood in this mm-hmm. movie. The blood count was there. Not only, We have 11 kills, so, like, and, we, and with the blood, I was... I was very, very satisfied in, in that regard. The quality of the version I watched on Tubi, I guess both of us watched, was pretty good. Like, oh, it was yeah, pretty yeah. Clear, so I think if you're, like, looking for blood that you're actually going to be able to see, I think Stage Fright delivers on that. Um, so after Corinne is murdered and without the exit key, the group begins to panic and the killer disconnects the phone lines to prevent them from contacting the police. As the group tries to escape, one of the male characters, it's the older gentleman, I can't remember his name, forgive me, (laughs) is stabbed by Wallace, who hangs his body to be found by the group. He's an efficient man. I mean, he's getting that job done. Three kills. Exactly. Three kills. And the the people have no idea. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Peter, the director, and another male character named Danny leave the rest of the group inside a locked room as they search for the killer. Don't you know not to split up? <laughs> they, this nice. hits a, every, all like the every, drugs, it's like all before the every kill, there's something that they do that just makes me roll my eyes so hard. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, so it came out right before, like, the 80, like, true, like, when, like, the slash movies were, like, are booming. It, it's just insane to me to think that, like... All of this, like, come on, y'all, come on, come on. Think, also, think of the logic. I guess I have to remember it's a movie, so. <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> but surprise, Wallace, our killer, breaks through a window into the room, grabs a character named Mark, and kills him with a power drill through the door. Mm-hmm. Man, that was a good one, too. Good kills, good kills. The group moves onto the stage as Peter accidentally kills Brett, who is this character who was missing for the past hour or so, however long they've been hiding. He accidentally kills Brett with an axe, thinking that he is the killer. But we're not counting that because that was an accidental kill. So now we're at, so that's five kills that have happened inside this rehearsal space. Wow. All right, on the sixth kill. Soon after, Sybil is grabbed by the killer and pulled through the floorboards of the stage. Danny and Peter grab her arms and try to pull her up, 
but as a result, Sybil is torn in half. Ah, uh, I love this. <laughs> I loved that kill when it happened. <laughs> it was like that's how dogs work. It's not. It's absolutely not. But I don't care. The just the blood and the pure mayhem of it all made my heart flutter. It was fantastic kill. Oh man. <laughs> All right, kill, kill number seven. Danny immediately goes down into the floor. Uh-huh. <laughs> Danny immediately yeah. goes down to the floor and is also killed by Wallace with a chainsaw. Barely puts up a fight, by the way, if I may add. Barely Why puts up a fight. Why is there a chainsaw? In the bottom? I mean, do you really need a chainsaw to make stage props? Um, I took stagecraft in college, and I never once turned on a chainsaw. Yeah, maybe I like a little saw, hand, sure. like a little sawzall. Yeah. All right, yeah, I'll no, try especially... to um open up my imagination a little bit for this. Why not? <laughs> <laughs> Kill number eight, number seven inside the rehearsal space. Wallace wounds Laurel, who it's the first time we're hearing of this character. Anyway. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Wallace wounds Laurel and cuts off Peter's arm before the chainsaw runs out of gas. The uh, killer grabs the axe and decapitates the director. Love he has, it. He has not once repeated a method of killing. That is another thing that I noted down when I was watching. Like all these kills, every single one, like even though he's using a lot of times roughly the same type of weapons he's changing up how he kills which is what a true artist would do so (laughs) i I give him i give him are we idolizing irving (laughs) wallace (laughs) i just feel like as an actor he knows that he he's got to give the audience members something Mm -hmm. something so he's you know he's making sure that every kill is not like the last yeah so I'll, i'll give him that and now we're at the climax of the film, like that quickly. In real time, it takes a bit to get there. You know, like I said, nine and a half minutes in between kills ish. But at the climax of the film, Wallace finds Laurel hiding in the shower room and stabs her before dragging her lifeless body away. Alicia continues to search for the key, which Alicia, I would like to bring up that she probably gets the most screen time in this film because she ends up being the final girl. But before this, She's really not seen that often except for the very beginning. So she kind of disappears for a bit and then she comes back. She's searching for the key and finds Wallace sitting next to the group's dead bodies placed around the stage and covered in feathers. I love the imagery of that scene. That whole scene was fantastic because he is still in costume and he's just killed everyone, has moved them all onto stage as an actor and he's staging their bodies in a way Mm -hmm. and it's not just like normally nowadays movies they just cut to the shot and it like pulls back and you see them but it's really it was really really cool to see him set that up he like takes it even like he kicks off a mannequin takes a decapitated head and puts the head on the mannequin i was like that's like a true artist like a true artist he's giving the members something a show and then he sits down the like most on his power- throne, he's just like sitting there, just stoic. And the on most- his throne. When he- and then the black cat jumps in his lap. 
And I was like, aesthetic. He yeah, has achieved dude, his vision. Dude, goals. Yep. <laughs> he's achieved his he's achieved his moves. Alicia is underneath the stage and she sees that the key is like wedged in between the floorboards, like directly in front of the killer. She somehow gets the key and then Wallace, you know, hears her. It was if like falls and like makes a noise or something and gets or the cat notices it. That's what happened. Okay, yeah. so she's moving it and cats being so smart. He sees <laughs> it wiggling and he walks over there. So then, of course, Alicia gets caught. She's defending herself against Wallace before they go up to the catwalk above the stage. Just as Wallace corners her, she sprays him with a fire extinguisher and the killer falls. Well, he falls, grabs into a cord, and then that breaks, and then he falls. Um, Alicia makes her way to the exit, but surprise, Wallace attacks her again. She dumps a burning trash can on him, lighting him on fire, then escapes the theater to find the police. So you think, oh... Well, I didn't think that because I've seen enough horror films. So, yeah, no, that yeah. was not the ending. <laughs> Although, I was expecting, like, a dream sequence. You know, I think Friday 13th just built that into us. You know, okay. we expect that, like, you know, they're going to the hospital. They're going to lay down. The PTSD is going to kick in, you know, and we get a dream sequence. But, yeah, no. Um, no dream I, sequence. I, she does wake up at the ho- in the hospital, a real hospital, I'm assuming, like with not, real medical professionals. Not a psychiatric institution. <sighs> I, ho- I hope so. I hope it was a real one and she got the help that she needed. Alicia then returns to the theater to find her missing watch. Could she not just tell someone she was missing it and have like the police search the premises? Because like you said, PTSD, like why would you want to go back to that? Exactly. It says she's just like, no, I have to have this watch. Pull out IV. I'm on a walk. I'm gonna take a walk. <laughs> I Gal- gotta go. Gal- I got to go. <laughs> yeah. Her little, the little comfy socks with the grips. Like she's exactly. like peace. Yeah, I'm out. <laughs> she returns to the theater and she runs into Willie, who is the older stagehand who we meet in the beginning of the film, who is like looking for the cat. Willie mentions the number of dead bodies that were found at the crime scene, which triggers Alicia to panic as the body count does not include the killer. So in her head, like there's kind of like some flashbacks in her head. She's counting and she's like, oh, that's missing one body. And at that moment, an unmasked Wallace, our killer, attacks Alicia out of nowhere, Willie shoots Wallace in the head and rambles about getting him right in between the eyes. Like, repeatedly rambles about right between the eyes. <laughs> I was like, okay, man. We get it. It's like when you're like, the it's like when you're on set and the director is like telling you, all right, we're just going to just just say he thinks that he's in rehearsal, but really he's shooting. And he's just keep saying the line like he's like, eventually he's going to get it right. But I'm like, dude, we hear you. He literally says it like, I think I wrote like, like eight times. I think he, he <laughs> reset. I saw him in the eye. <laughs> oh, right in between the eyes. I was oh, like, oh, man. Lord, oh, Lord. that's funny. Yeah, that was a. Uh... He's another, like, kind of, like, cliche slasher side character. Like, the helpful stagehands. Now we're at the very end of the film. <laughs> In typical, hilarious slasher fashion, 
Our killer awakes for one last scare, apparently having survived from his headshot. In between the eyes. How? I, I mean, after all, every kill, I just have to say, how? <sighs> maybe, it, maybe it was all a dream. Uh, maybe it was. Maybe that was the dream sequence. They just, yeah. just, mm. just didn't want to address it to the audience. Or maybe we were just not dumb enough. Maybe, maybe this is actually a really artistic, pretentious horror film, and we just missed whatever it was uh, trying to go for. I did enjoy some of the cinematography. Um, oh, at, t- yeah. at times, I got the impression of like moving art from like the colors and the lighting used. And there were some scenes where like the actresses were like posing, posing while they were acting in stage in the play and also posing kind of like before they got killed because they had to convey an expression without using words. So I, th- I really like that. One of the other scenes that I really enjoyed was the one where the actress was standing uh, on the other side of that big aquarium and she was like watching the fish swim to the top. It was like a really small moment, but I thought it was really pleasing to the eye. The cinematography is by Renato Tafori and he worked on Dario Gento's opera and this director's other film called The Church. I want to watch The Church. Yeah, Um, it's a Dario Argento production. Pretty much what they do nowadays with, like, Blumhouse or Sam Raimi, you know, it's like they gave some advice. From the creators of Blumhouse's Get Out. (laughs) (laughs) So the people that gave the movie money, is that what you mean? (laughs) Yeah, that's exactly what they mean. Stage Fright is a good example of how style can triumph over substance. I mean, we're, you know, we laughed at the kills and, you know, thought most of them were, like, pretty silly but it did have its own distinct style and one could appreciate this film for some of the more artistic moments alone yeah absolutely i noted that too i actually thought that this was uh well it felt like a like a slasher of the early 80s and but it had that production of the now you know, like it looked really sharp. Like, and I, I noticed like there's like a couple moments like when they're down below and it's like very blue, but it's done in like a dim lit way that it was very, it was very visually pleasing while watching. Yeah. I was very into it. And that's where I felt a lot of the Jallo type of like, cause Jallo loves the color of red and blue mm-hmm. and all that stuff. So I felt like a lot of the colors in this were very prominent. So I really enjoyed a lot of that. And so when the blood was coming out, it was just all very pretty to me. Yeah, Um, yeah, I agree. Stage fright isn't a particularly great giallo, given how it trades any real sense of plot and mystery for gore and, you know, laughs, silliness. But by slasher standards, this is a solid movie that should please fans of the slasher subgenre. And as the targeted audience of this like <laughs> subgenre. I was very well pleased with this. I had a, I have, I've had a great time with this. Yeah, um, I would say yeah. watch it with a group of friends and you'll have a good time, especially the very ends. You know, once it hits that climax, it's where things get like really going and there's tension. Um, and then of course you have that ridiculous, hilarious. <laughs> the killer is not dead. <laughs> oh, that alone is just. Uh, very abusing to me. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, I very much enjoyed that. 
But yeah, no, for for me, I I had a blast with this. Uh, I've seen some pretty dreadful slasher movies um, over the years, so I I really think Stage Fright is made with some some craft, even if you know some uh, some crafted. It's a bit it's very campy. It feels very product of the eighties. Um, but we are getting towards the butt end of it all. So, you know, it's just, it's it's interesting. I, I really like this one. I, I love my slashers to be a little bit on the ridiculous side. And so it checked all those boxes for me. Yeah. And the ridiculous kill count was also fantastic. So every time, because normally sometimes these slashers, that they get a dull moment where it really like just, it slows yeah. down. And I'm like, um, oh, like you're you're making me try to buy this Alice character's acting right now. Let's not. Let's just get yeah. back to what I came to see. The good stuff. So I, the good stuff. The good stuff. And this movie, I felt like gave me plenty of that. Um, and it gave me a, a fantastic mask that I'm like, why haven't I not done this for Halloween? So cool. Dylan, as Jalo of the Month Club's resident slasher expert, can you dive into the history of slasher films and how stage fright fits into the subgenre? I could spend all day talking about the history of slashers, and I definitely think the origin of slashers, the slasher genre, definitely has that sort of what came first, the chicken or the egg type of mentality. Because, I mean, first and foremost, we humans have all, we've got the most messed up, fucked up minds on the face of the planet. I mean, we had the gladiators scenario go played out in front of us, and then we watched that move into moving theaters with Shakespeare, and then, of course, Next thing you know, it's in, it's in the cinemas. So there's this whole debate within the slasher genre as what is the first true official slasher? Like, what is it? Everyone wants to say it's Michael Myers and it wants, it wants to say it's Halloween. I don't think that it is without a shadow of a doubt. I don't think that that's the first slasher. I think it's the in the same way that Blair Witch Project is technically not the first found footage film. But it's the one that marketed it and the one that yeah. gave it its identity. That's yeah, that's the same type of mentality that could that you could be said with the slasher genre. I think movies like Psycho and even uh, Black Sunday, they are the prototypes of the slasher genre. And even now people watch Psycho and consider it more like a psychological drama. But back in the day, that movie was breaking grounds. So, I mean, we yeah. just to have one kill by a person, that was that was classified as a slasher film for its time. And I mean, we also got the first, you know, flushing toilet in Psycho. So we also, we learned Norman Bates takes a shit, just like all of us. <laughs> we learned that in Psycho. So for me, I, I felt like Psycho and Black Sunday, those are the prototypes, you know, even that they have a killer and they are going around killing and, you know, and they kind of set the rules for other people to play with. But ultimately they, we know we build off of that. But then in like what, I think it's 1974, it's October, we get two horror films vastly different that you could arguably say full mold of the slasher genre. And those are one, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, aka the rip of Honeydew. A honeydew um, prequel. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> um, and then Black Christmas, which yeah. in my opinion, those movies while we're, are vastly different than what slasher movies are today. Whew, not to discredit anyone, but to say, like, Halloween is the first slasher, or even Black Christmas. Like, that's completely ignoring 
Hitchcock, as you're saying, yeah, and and Mario Bava films and Jalo films, like you're ignoring like the genesis of European horror, classic horror. Exactly, exactly. And that's why I pulled in Black Sunday, because Black Sunday actually came out only months after Psycho did. And both of those have this sort of killer, uh, killing and, you know, one dies and then who's going to be next type of mentality. And Halloween is just like, it's ripped of psycho influences, you know, even down to the casting, but everyone knows that trivia question, you know. Um, But what makes Black Christmas and Texas Chainsaw Massacre so unique is, well, one, for, for instance, Black Christmas is you don't know who the killer is by the end of the film. But your logic of how slashing movies work, because most people didn't see Black Christmas when it came out. It had to find its audience later on. That's why Halloween take, took all of it Black Christmas's credit. But marketing. Again, marketing. Yes. It's it's always in the marketing, you know. It's it's like with Blair Witch Project, Last Broadcast, Alien Abduction, uh, all these other films that came out, even bits of Cannibal Holocaust, you know. Those those but it's the Blair Witch Project that takes the credit, you know, because of marketing and, you know, profitability yeah, and all that. Such a hit, stuff. yeah. Yeah. And uh, no no disrespect, Blair Witch, I, I love it. I watch it every October. I'm a big fan of I'm a big, massive found footage fan. So uh, Black Christmas, I felt like, did a, such a great job at setting up and making it a little bit presentable to audience members that you have a killer and you have a setting and you have an anniversary. So a lot of the tropes that would soon to become norms were being established. Anniversary, final girl the black character dies first type of mentalities, all that stuff that we've yeah. come to know as like tropes, tropes. Um, mm-hmm. you know, they're all, they're all kind of being mildly established in these prototypes. But then yes, what would happen is, is you would get a little indie filmmaker named John Carpenter. He would come out and make this movie called Halloween. And, you know, everyone knows the story of Halloween. I, I, won't bore you to tears listening to it again, you know. Um, if you're listening to a podcast called Jalo Club, I would like to think that you're a little bit sophisticated on the in terms of the <laughs> origins of, you know, Halloween and stuff. But what happened is Halloween was such a landmark. You know you've made something that's good when everyone starts to copy it. And even the genre, even the movie that I love to death, Friday the 13th, the one that got me here doing what I do now, is nothing mere than a copy of Halloween and Psycho and Black Christmas and all these others. It's just barring all the formulas. It's just, to me, Friday the 13th is the first one that truly has established the rules of the game. This is the one we are now, these are the rules of how slashing movies work, and this is what the next 10 years are going to look like. What immediately happened, I mean immediately after Halloween, is we got a bunch of copycat films, a bunch of films that started coming out because they saw how great Halloween did and they realized, oh, you can make this for this amount of money and, you know, turn a profit like that. We're going to make 50,000 of them for the next 10 years. (laughs) But the next one that came out and even the creators have noted, yeah, they won. They were banking on the success of Halloween with Friday 13th. Then you got Friday 13 part two. And it's insane. Like there are 12 installments with Jason Voorhees out there. 12. And that's my boy. I love that man. He stays busy and, and the, he makes sure he is completely employed. He has got he has gotten 
right now he's struggling though with the lawsuit, everything. He's struggling to yeah. to get a job, but I believe in him that one day he <laughs> it's will. COVID. Work again. I blame COVID. I blame COVID. One day, one of these days, my boy Jason will work again. Friday Thirteenth Part Two was the first official slasher sequel to ever come out, and this established that these were really, truly here to stay, that we now have a franchise building on our hands, and the rules, everyone now knows the rules, and what, I think it came out, part two came out either a, a year later or two years later. Like, they started to turn these baddies out the way that they turn out a Saw film. Like, yeah. like even the... Uh, like, yeah, Scream like, 2, Scream 2 came out literally a year after the first Scream. Like, they just, like, pumped that baby out. Yeah. And then, so next thing you know, you have this 80s craze, and then everyone's trying to get in, and the next thing you know, I mean, you people are trying to get creative. I mean, you've got horror films like Demon Wind, where the slasher villain is the wind itself. You can't even go outside without the wind. <laughs> you're not even trying, safe from the wind. You're not even safe from the wind. And it's and even it's funny, because there is a little bit of a gray area when it comes to the slasher genre. All you really need is a killer and then, like, a pattern of, you know, like, one dies by one. And then you obviously – but it's even better if you have those tropes of, like, it's an anniversary. It's the 15-year anniversary, and, you know, poor little Alice, you know, has family issues. And, oh, poor Jimmy is the black kid, so he has to die first. And all the cell phones don't work, and so stuff like that. And uh, a lot of these movies realize that, and they knew they could turn a profit and go off, you know. I mean, what? I think I remember um, our Pamela Voorhees wanted to buy a car. Like, that's why she did Friday the 13th. She wanted to buy a car. You know, and now look at her. So, like, there's definitely a fan base for the slash genre. And we saw that boom. But I find so fascinating is also the death of the slasher genre that happened in the 80s. And I particularly blame Wes Craven because he made a film called A Nightmare on Elm Street. And after that... All rules were practically just, it, it, it came so commercialized, so overheated. And what I pray every day will happen to the superhero genre, people got tired, they got oversaturated. Yeah. You know, it was everywhere. We will never have what the 80s had, I feel like, ever again when it comes to the freshness of the slasher genre. Yeah. Slash movies were trying to make it come back. Then you have this 90s era of slashers, you know, and Wes Craven was like, no one really went and saw My New Nightmare, which had a lot of precursors to the movie we're about to get into. It felt like a prototype as well for the resurgence of slashers that were about to come, which okay. because Wes Craven got his hands on the hottest slasher script that was being tossed around at the time. It was in a massive bidding war and landed at Dimension Films, and he directed a little movie that was originally called Scary Movie. Oh, you mean that um that Kevin Williamson joint? Yeah, that little joint that you know. (laughs) Mike Dawson's Creek. Wait. Yes, yes. (laughs) Dawson's Creek. The the lovable creator of Dawson's Creek wrote a wrote a little horror spec that uh was being being auctioned very heavily, and ended up in the laps of Wes Craven, and he said sure. Ultimately said sure, let's do it, and scream became the legacy that it became and not immediately overnight obviously it because 101 down name down nations and jerry Maguire opened up with it it was a christmas movie yeah obviously yeah. odd timing for a scream but <laughs> word of mouth clearly got around and then next thing you know it became this household sensation and spawned now we're about to get a fifth one 
it's insane. And that brought in this resurgence, which led us down to the history of, you know, I Know What You Did Last Summer, which was written even before Scream. And, but then we got that and then Urban Legend. And then, but we noticed that the slasher genre was changing after Scream because now it was getting a little bit more meta. People had the movies. Yeah. The the movies that we grew up with the eighties are now a product in these movies. People have seen these movies. They now know the rules of the movies. A lot of times Um, they now have these characters now have backstories. It's not just about the kills, you know, poor little girl wants to run away from her small town and get and go to college type (laughs) of backstory. Um, And we're getting actual actors, you know, like name stars, like, it's not just Kevin Bacon's first film, you know, it's we're getting because of the works of the amazement of Drew Barrymore and that opening scene, we're like, oh, we can get actually name name people and they'll show up because they love these actors. So, you know, we're watching these movie stars show up in these big slasher films. And I mean, down to what Tara Reid was in um, Urban Legend, you know, and she had that terrible terrible i mean she was like she was hot then you know like it's yes, these big names at the time and yeah. like jennifer love hewitt you know party of five so she was huge at the time freddie prince jr like a lot of people that for the time were big names yeah then obviously what ended up happening is is we these killers became almost humanized in a way because it was no longer michael myers it was no longer jason Voorhees or freddie krueger it was like Who's ghost-faced? Who's the urban legend? Who's Timothy Oliphant? Yes, that's right. <laughs> I <laughs> think this is like my favorite ghost face. Mickey. <laughs> Mickey. I love Mickey. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but what's so interesting is then this led to the remake era, post 9-11, um, horror resurgence happened with the slasher. So the slasher movies started off as this like gorilla prototype type of thing and morphed into this, you know, where they started taking them a little bit seriously, getting named for actors. And now we're in this post 9-11 thing where like we now know the war on terror is a thing. We've seen these horrifying images of, you know, people being tortured and all sorts of stuff. And now they're taking that imagery and they're putting them into slasher movies. Which is why I think films like Hostel and stuff like that are just so shocking. Like torture because, porn. Yeah. That's when that got popular. Yeah, it got popular right after 9-11. And then you get Saw. You get the Saw, which plays, you know, he's a killer who's not actually killing, but you got you're still following the formula of the slasher rule. You know, they're dying one by one in these elaborate ways, you know, so there's still within the slasher family and you get all these remakes you know you've got texas chainsaw massacre was the first real official remake of the slasher genre like jessica biel yeah texas jessica, yeah it took what, away 2003 the, i think i remember that having a massive marketing campaign when yeah. i was a kid i remember seeing that that little meow noise <laughs> like the camera me oh freaking me out and it, <laughs> And I wasn't even, like, into horror at that age. And I just was be freaked out just by hearing the ad playing in the other room. So then you get this, like, you're in this slasher crave of the early 2000s where they're playing off of everyone's fear of 9-11 and that graphic, horrific imagery. And Texas Chainsaw Massacre was a massive hit. Everyone loved it and went and, at least audiences went and saw it and was, like, and was just shocked by it all, you know, the sort of glossy, you know, like we're not talking high budget, but we're not, we're talking about 30, 25 to $40 million budget slasher movie. These slashers are now being made with some money thrown at it. 
um, and some gore and some kills. And then what happened is people got burned out about that. And then now we have the Happy Death Day meets Halloween 2018 resurgence that we might be getting back into. So I don't think the slasher genre is ever going to go away. You know, it's just always going to be mildly evolving. It's all, you know, it's always going to be mildly evolving and Mm -hmm. changing. But I do find it interesting how a lot of times the slasher movies are semi-products of their times. Just horror movies in general. I mean, like, you look at what Jordan Peele's doing right now and stuff like that. You know, how he's pulling from Get Out and and Get Out and Us and how he's taking the horrors that people are Uh, Jordan Peele's doing something similar to what George A. Romero did, where he was taking very topical ideas at the time and putting them into, you know, zombie movies and horror movies and, and really, like, smart but not on the nose or in your face kind of ways. Exactly. Um, and I feel like the slasher genre in a lot of ways kind of has been tapping into a little bit of different sort of motifs and styles. Um, Cause we've seen, you know, the campy slashers of the eighties that was just all about the kills and the ridiculousness of it. And then we saw the, you know, the meta-ness that came of Wes Craven's scream. Um, and then we saw the, just, the torturous, you know, um, the phase of the uh, early 2000s. And I'm curious to see where we end up next. Clearly, there's an audience, given how many people went and saw Halloween 2018. Like, it's insane. We saw it, and uh, I loved it. I mean, I remember Did seeing it. you see it at Fantastic Battle? It opened night. Oh, I, it was so good. It was so good. I, I had terrible seats. I was and- like... And Queen Jamie was there. Oh, my God. And she was in, in her <laughs> all-black. Delightful. All, all-black outfit. I remember it was actually that I worked the premiere. I was on the red carpet for that one. And I, I'll i never forget. It was one of the best days. Someone asked her for a high five. So she gave it. But when she did it, she pulled, she, she like, clapped it in and pulled him in and gave us a history lesson on the very first high five ever documented. <laughs> And and I love it because that's so, it felt like so Jamie like she would yeah. know like yeah. where the first like high the five is. High five. Like, I don't want to talk about this film franchise I've been in all these years. Let me tell you about the first high five. Exactly, and I remember being so blown away by that. And she was in she was just having a great night. Yeah, I also saw it at Fantastic Fest. I was thrilled when I got accepted. And I was like, I don't have to fight for this. Yeah. And as a slasher fan, I just I, I I loved it. I I loved it. So I'm curious to see where we go next. 2020 is going to be such a monumental year that we're about to see it in everything. So I won't be surprised if you know the future of horror is has a lot of 2020 uh, inspired by. So we'll see we'll see um, where it goes. But I just I do find the history of the slasher genre very fascinating. Because I don't know what came first, the chicken or the egg. It's like a lot of people say it's it's Halloween because, you know, well, that's what profited and made the money. And, you know, that's what told us in a lot of ways the rules of the game and just took everything else and built upon it. But you also can't have a chicken without some sort of groundwork. So Stage Fright obviously came out in, what, 1987? Yes. Yeah, so it came out in 1987, and this was a towards the back half of like the slasher crave. So to be honest, this one I 
falls under, in my opinion, underappreciated. Uh, gets unrecognized, doesn't get recognized a lot because at, this is the time frame when a, a lot of slash movies were starting to burn out. You know, they were they were doing their thing, but you know, they were kind of becoming oversaturated. Yeah, you know? and you got in 1987 there were a lot of hybrid horror films. Like you had like The Lost Boys, which isn't super scary. You know, you yeah. have these these like sexy boy band type vampires. So that's not like a straight horror movie. You have The Monster Squad, which you know that is not extremely scary, and it's kind of a kids movie. Evil Dead 2, horror comedy, you get a mm-hmm. lot of these hybrids. So, I, yeah, I do think that horror movies were being... They're being re, like phased, uh, redefined. Yeah, they were like, you were phasing out of the straight slashers into something else. Days Fright is a little bit on the... What makes it interesting to me is it's a little bit stuck in the middle. For that time frame, I would have felt like, man, the slasher movie felt like it probably should have came out two or three years prior, you know, type of, and it would have been a hit. People would have loved the Owl Murderer. You know, they would have gone really crazy and maybe would have been more interested into seeing this. I really enjoyed this version of Stage Fright. I feel like it's one of the um, last minute slashers, like hardcore slashers that were coming out in the 80s. Before we switched on to the 90s, you do get a little bit of that Italian flavor um, that is just so interesting and seeing two different styles because it does have that like American like kill factor of just trying to just throw as many kills as you can as possibly at you. But with that Italian like visual aesthetic that I, I do think is interesting. Do you have any flavor of the month picks? Any movies or books or music or anything that you would pair with Stage Fright 1987? I would pair the Mortuary Collection. The Mortuary Collection is a horror anthology film that is on Shutter, and what I love about it is it's got this beautiful production. Like it's it looks amazing. There's all these really great. All the shorts are very interesting and fascinating, um, and I really enjoyed it. And I'm not a big horror anthology guy to be honest. I think that's probably one of my subgenres I kind of dislike the most because of the whole stop start mentality that comes mm-hmm. with horror anthologies. You know. It's great if you love shorts, and I do like a good horror short, but most of the time I find myself just like, oh, I'm really in it, and then it just peters well, out. Well, and it's, it's difficult if the anthology, each segment is by a, a different, different director. director. That's not right. the case. Mortuary one. Collection, One Gentleman, Ryan Spindell, Mortuary Collection, On Shutter. I would also recommend it, and I like anthology films. And one of the bigger aspects of the film that I really liked was that every segment was set in a different decade. Mm-hmm. And it was very well done in regard to set design, costuming, the color scheme. So I, I really like that. But so I would actually, that's a good, good flavor of the month. You know, spooky season is always a vibe. So I really feel like it fits that. And it's fun. It's also, it's a fun type of scary, you know. Um, and also, I actually think the final set piece of that is one of my favorites I've seen in, like, a horror anthology. Like, I just love when everything boils and comes to a head. And I think that that whole set piece is fantastic. You know, there I've seen some good horror anthology films that I've enjoyed. I've seen some really bad ones, you know. <laughs> um, so horror anthologies are kind of a hit or miss with me. But I was surprised at how much I really enjoyed the Mortuary Collection. So I would really highly recommend that. 
And I would check out Unspookable if you've got a child. I really like their podcast. They tell like kid stories for children. And I love listening to them while I'm driving. What? Um, yeah, I've never heard of this. Yes. They're, uh, I just recently discovered them. Um, Un- they're a, Unspookable? It's like, uns- they tell like little short, like little, like almost like campfire um, children's stories. It's a podcast by Sound System Media, and it's a family-friendly uh, podcast. And I think they're just the most—it's just the most adorable little podcast. So if you actually normally would have some more darker stuff to recommend, but yeah. I've been in a more lighter, fair horror. I think it's just because I spent so much of the year watching so many like batshit insane horror movies yeah. that. When we get closer to Halloween, I, I want to actually tone it down a little bit and experience more of the the season. And I feel like with the Unspookable podcast and the Mortuary Collection, they kind of they have that just spooky vibe that you want around the season. And uh, I, I I have those are my two recommendations. Those are my flavors. Well, yeah. those are awesome. Those are very different than mine. So mine are, um, well, we just talked about this film just not too long ago, Halloween 1978. I went with the whole escaped psychiatric patient vibe. Like, why not watch, like, the OG? Um, And then I also wanted to recommend Blood and Black Lace, which is a Jalo film from 1964. I actually reviewed it a few episodes ago on Jalo of the Month Club, but I think this fits really well stylistically with Stage Fright. It's about a masked man with a metal claw glove that stalks models at a fashion salon in Rome. So it has that creative, artsy, outlandish characters, like that sort of vibe. So I think that would pair well with Stage Fright. So Blood and Black Lace and Halloween, OG Halloween. Nice. Well, Dylan, while I have you here on this Skype episode, is there anything that you would like to plug or promote? For the entire month of October, uh, I always love, because the previous years I've been traveling a lot, so I didn't really get to experience the greatness that is of Halloween. So this year I've made sure, I took a, took a declaration, I'm like, COVID is not getting away. I'm having a good October. So I've been doing this series over on my TikTok of all places. Yes, I have a TikTok. <laughs> it is, <laughs> look. You go where the people go. So if you want to... I don't wanna, even have a TikTok, but I always watch your videos. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, I go where the people go. And I'm surprised at, like, actually how well it's going. It's just a simple 31 days of horror. I didn't even give it a fancy title. You know, it's just every day I get on my TikTok and I recommend a new horror movie for everyone. And I've been... I started off fresh. I gave a 2020 film with the Shutter uh, massive hit host. I felt like that was let's start let's start where people can easily accessibly get this movie and then have been slowly but surely diving into all sorts of different films. I got foreign films. Uh, I've got a actually a family oriented one coming shortly that I think because uh, I just recently talked about them and the playground. The pl- I don't know if you saw the playground at I Fantastic did, Fest. I did not see it at Fantastic Fest, but I bought the DVD because I wanted to see it. And now I just own this DVD of a movie that I will never watch again. <laughs> yep. And I just recently recommended that because that is my limit. That movie's my like, limit. I would also recommend it, but be aware that you're never going to want to watch that film you're, again. You're never going to. Yeah, no, no. Um, unfortunately, I remember that movie vividly. And 
we have a mutual friend named Courtney, and she is the one who said, oh, I'm about to go watch this movie called Playground at 11 o'clock a.m. in the morning at, on day 60 of Fantastic Fest. And I was like, you know what? I don't want to see my movie alone. I'll just swap yeah, into yours. You have your day ruined. When we go to these festivals, 90% of the time, even if the movie's awful, it always ends in applause. It yeah. always ends in applause because a lot of times there's filmmakers, some, someone there. This movie did not end in applause. And that has always struck a chord with me because of the final moments of that movie. It, it just, so I've been recommending just like really batshit insane movies over on my TikTok. And also, you know, don't be surprised if I get on there and do a random Mamma Mia dance. So, uh, you what know, is your, what's your username on TikTok? Slasher Reviews, which is my username for pretty much most of all my media. I, I'm always on Letterbox. If you just want to know what random thing I'm watching, it's easy for me to just Letterbox is the most amazing app in the whole wide world. It, it's easy to use. You're able to just go on there, drop a review, a score, all that stuff. And you're able to change it because you you know, your opinions change on movies as they go along. So I just, I love that app. So slash reviews on that. So I always, most of the time will drop a Letterbox score for something that I've watched so and then I'm always reviewing things like I'll I'll have a review of haunting a blind manor coming shortly you know stuff like that so I'm always posting stuff so if you just want to find me on and just know another person to recommend you more hard content uh <laughs> what about your that? YouTube channel um if listeners are searching for your YouTube channel, what's the easiest way to find easiest it? Easiest way is you can just Google search or in YouTube search slash your movie reviews, slash your reviews. I make sure to tag every time I tag. Those are like the top tags that I got. So you will find me if you just type those in. Also, nine out of 10, if you search some random movie like Bleed With Me or Honeydew, I'm most of the time the only person reviewing those movies. <laughs> I'm, I'm not no gonna... you're not not honeydew i left a glowing review for that one <laughs> so most of the time if you type it even if you type in honeydew movie review underneath the trailers and all the marketing stuff you're bound to probably find me because not a whole lot of people tend to review those so i do yeah. like to talk about the more obscure but i'm not afraid to talk about a mainstream like i'm gonna review haunting a blind man or like I have not gotten a chance to watch it yet because as we talked about in the start of the episode, I have been back to back to back with film festivals, but I I... loved the first season. So I'm excited. And I, I know going in based on your review that it's, I'm not going to get that scare horror factor. You're not. Uh, So I'm okay with that. Yeah. It's a much different subgenre I feel like it's still got that Mike Flanagan tone that he normally does but it's got that uh, it's a different subgenre in horror which I thought was really great but yeah that jump scare car scene that everyone loved in Hill House it doesn't have that level of scare factor and I'm okay with that and also brain tissues like I was not prepared (laughs) (laughs) I was not prepared four episodes four to nine like oh man I think that's how Hill House was as well. Exactly. I think Mm. it was episode six is the one where they're, it's the the long shot shot. one. Mm -hmm. And that one was just really good and really scary. And they also, they don't have a long shot episode in this, but they do something in one of the episodes past four. I won't say which one it is. That is just pure horror. It's fantastic, but it's not like Hill House horror, which is what I think is so great. But some people, will be disappointed because it's just not Hill House. 
So you can follow Jalo the Month Club on Twitter and Instagram at Jalo Club. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts and you like what you hear, please give the podcast a five-star rating. I have Jalo the Month Club pins for sale, three different sizes and colors. All information is available on the Jalo Club Instagram. And feel free to message me on Instagram or email Jalo of the Month Club at gmail.com if you have any questions. The logo design is by Vegan Patches on Instagram. You can find Matt's Etsy shop at Retirement Funds. Please visit his Etsy shop because right now is a really important time for small businesses. Also, our theme music is by Dream Division. You can find Dream Division's music on Instagram at Dream Division Music and on Bandcamp at dreamdivision.bandcamp.com. Please check out Dream Division's new record, new merch, all that good stuff. Right now, we really need to be supporting our artists and creators and musicians. So I would really appreciate if you just checked out Vegan Patches and Dream Division. And you can follow myself, Diana, on Twitter, Instagram, and Letterboxd at DianaNK. And don't forget the cat content. As always, I'm your host, Diana. And I'm your guest, Dylan. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of Jollo Month Club. Happy Halloween! Happy Halloween!